The following is a message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. More information about Parkview is available at www.parkviewchurch.org. All right, good morning. Welcome to Parkview. I'm Doug, one of the pastors here, and it's great to celebrate Christmas with you and hard act to follow following after little kids on the screen. They did a great job. So we're really glad that you're here. And um, uh, like um, Sharon said earlier, amazing. Imagine if it was 30 degrees colder right now, we'd be shoveling a lot of this stuff. So nice to just walk through it. So good to be with you. We are um, going to talk about this morning uh, an amazing prophecy from the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah saw so clearly a gift that God had for his people, and uh, that's why at Christmas time we give gifts and all of that. I'm curious, how many of you have your shoppings all done? You're completely good there. I don't, I don't like you guys very much right now, so I feel like we're just starting. Like we're way behind this year for some reason. So, um, but um, if you want to get a little nostalgic this morning, I did a little research and we found out like what were the most popular gifts in different um, decades. So for example, 1945, these were the most popular ki kids' gifts. Uh, Legos, they're still really popular today. That's pretty amazing. So Legos, the Magic 8-Ball was a big one then, and the Slinky, was, those were the top three in 45. If you jump ahead 20 years, uh, the Easy Bake Oven was top of the charts there, and the Etch-A-Sketch too. And um, so then you jump ahead another 20 years, and you got the Cabbage Patch Dolls. For some reason last night, a very masculine voice from the back cheered Cabbage Patch Dolls. I don't know. <laughs> Still trying to figure that one out. And Transformers were big in 85. And you jump ahead another 20 years, and it was the uh, Nintendo Wii. It's the only thing I've waited in line for before for my kids, all right? And if you were to jump to this year, it's smartphones or tablets or laptops or... I mean, you see a trend, right? You try to hand a slinky to a kid today, and like, here we go. They're going to look at you like, yeah, whatever. Okay, what's next? What's coming? Or the Etch-A-Sketch was cutting edge in 65. But, but you see our, our culture clearly advancing in amazing ways uh, with technology. Uh, but what's amazing is even though the technology has increased dramatically, you still could probably survey the average family in 45 in 2015, and I, I think you'd almost see on our end of the scale, there are still uh, some big needs that are going unmet. You know, needs for comfort or for peace or for security. And we've got all the toys and we've got the, more, you know, we've got the gadgets and the technology now, but I think a lot of the studies show we're one of the most affluent generations if you live in the United States in 2015, and yet at the same time, we're among the most stressed, the most anxious, uh, the most unfulfilled. Uh, and so you just wonder what's going on. And that's, to me, what makes the Bible so remarkable, in particular, the prophet Isaiah. He spoke 2,700 years ago, and he's still speaking to his people, but he's still speaking to us today uh, because he's communicating the words of God. And, and these, the words in this book are timeless. I mean, they speak to humanity wherever we live on this planet and whenever we lived in this planet. So <clears throat> what I'd like you to do is if you could stand up with me, we're going to read um, the first verses of the passage we're going to look at. We're going to read these together to kind of set the tone and um, then jump in and see um, what uh, God has for us today. So let's read these together. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, 
as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. All right, before we look into this in a few more verses, could you just pray where you are right now? Could you ask God to speak to you this morning? We believe this is his book. We are in his presence. And so could you ask him to speak to you and give you something you need to know in your life uh, today? So you pray first. And then if you could please pray for me that I would speak clearly and boldly and that I would speak from God's word. God, it's awesome to be with your people here. It's awesome to get to study uh, words that you have written for us. And so I do pray that you would be our teacher today, that you would speak clearly, that we would all see and understand and know what you're calling us to do, and that you'd give us the courage to put to practice whatever it is you taught us today. So thank you. In your great name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. You can grab a seat. All right. So I want to say a couple of things. First of all, about this hope that God is offering uh, through the prophet Isaiah for his people, but for us today as well. First of all, when God offers hope, uh, it's a certainty that what he offers is going to come to be. There's a certainty that it's going to happen. I don't know if you caught this. Maybe there's an English major in the house. But when we read first verse 1, it was written in the future tense uh, when he said, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. But then when you jump to verse 2, the verb tenses flip. Because he says this, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. So there's a couple things going on here. Either Isaiah was really bad at grammar and had a hard time with his verb tenses, or there's something else. Um, Often you'll see when a prophet would write about the future, uh, he would write with it with such clarity and such vividness that to the prophet, it was as if these things had already happened. It was so clear. And so what, what Isaiah was seeing here was down the road that God was going to meet the needs of his people. Again, we're going to see later through this coming king. And so it's with such certainty and such vividness that Isaiah was talking about it as if it's already happened. And that's a great principle for us to grab to is that when God makes you a promise, God delivers. God doesn't just say things to get you to like him. Like he, he tells you the truth. He says, this is going to happen. And so with prophetic certainty, Isaiah spoke about what he saw to come. And the whole topic of biblical prophecy is an interesting topic. There are over 60 prophecies made about Jesus Christ. Uh, and so, several of them are about his birth. And so we saw in Isaiah 7:14 last week that the prediction was that Jesus would be born of a virgin. Uh, we see in another prophet, there's a prophet named Micah in Micah 5:2 that predicted that Messiah would be born in a town called Bethlehem, Epaphra. And so there were two Bethlehems at that day. You would have thought it would have been good enough, like, oh, wow, he nailed Bethlehem, but he nailed the exact location, Bethlehem Apathra, which was a small town, very small town at the time of, Isaiah, of Micah, about seven miles south and to the west of Jerusalem. So you would even give him a pass if he would have said, Messiah is going to be born in all the Jerusalem area. And the way I like to make the analogy for us would be like if he would have said, the Messiah is going to be born in the Iowa City area, and, but he was really born in Jotown, okay? So like he's saying, he's gonna be born in Jotown. That's how specific he was. We actually had people from Jotown last night that were excited that Jotown was mentioned today. So just thought I'd throw that out there. I think half the town was here, like five people. So it was great. So, 
But the prophecies looking ahead of Jesus were so amazingly accurate that there was a book called uh, Science Speaks, and research was done uh, as to the odds of one human being walking through 60 prophecies made about his life. Remember, these prophecies of Christ were 700 to 1,000 years before he was even born. So what are the odds of one human being living his life and fulfilling 60 prophecies made about him? And the number they came up with was 1 times uh, 10 to the 17th power. So it's a one with 17 zeros after it, all right? And so to get your head around that, he, they did another analogy. They said it would be like taking the state of Texas and coating it, just filling it with silver dollars two feet deep, and then taking one of those silver dollars, painting it red, and just chucking it somewhere in Texas. And the odds of you just walking through Texas and randomly picking out that silver dollar are the same odds of one person fulfilling 60 prophecies made uh, about his life. And so the truth we take from this this morning is that when God makes a promise, there's a certainty to it. He will fulfill what he says. And, and I just pause for a second and say, what, what is a promise that God has laid out for you from his word that you're still clinging to, that you're still hoping for? You can know that God is certain. When he makes a promise, he delivers, okay? So, so when he offers hope, there's certainty to it. Another element we see here is that when he makes a promise, often the way it's fulfilled is surprising. When, when Isaiah was describing uh, this region um, where it was, people were living in deep darkness, but they would see a great light, he was referring to the northern part of the kingdom of Israel that for many years had rebelled against God. They had had a series of really evil kings that had turned the people away from God. And so as a result, it was a, it was a part of the kingdom that often got invaded and the people were oppressed. There was deep poverty there. There was a real lack of interest in God, no prayer, all those kind of things. So it was a very dark area. And that was the very area where Jesus claimed he was Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth sat right in the middle of the, the northern kingdom. And it was such a bad reputation area that when Jesus was introduced to one of his disciples named Nathaniel, the first time they met, somebody said, hey, this is Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Certainly, certainly not. And so in a surprising way, God provided Messiah from such a, a dark uh, place. And yet, if you would even look at the whole Christmas story, if you look at uh, all the hallmarks you would have of somebody who was born to be great, Jesus would have none of those. He was born to peasants, uh, born to, um, in many ways, in a spurious situation. Sure, Joseph, the Holy Spirit got her pregnant. I'm sure that happened, Joseph. So all the cloud around the pregnancy, the village they were raised in, most likely most people there would have been uh, illiterate and uneducated. And so you would have had none of the markings of a king who, raised, who rose to such prominence uh, that Jesus did. In 2013, Time Magazine declared Jesus of Nazareth the most significant figure in all of human history. There are over 2 billion people on our planet today that claim allegiance to Jesus Christ. They, they identify as Christian, as followers of Jesus. And if today's an average day, there's going to be 150,000 people all around the world who are going to put their faith in Jesus for the first time. And you look at such an amazing impact that this life had from such, such humble beginnings. That's the way God rolls. God fulfills his promises often in very surprising ways. 
I was with a group of people this week and we were talking about God answering a prayer. Somebody had been praying for something for a while and we were just talking about, is it okay to be surprised? Like when God comes through, is that showing lack of faith? Well, I prayed for that and then God, God did it. And I said, I don't, you know, I don't think so. I think it's just like as a parent, you give a gift to a child and you see that look of joy in their faith. I think that's how God rolls. He loves it when he surprises us by answering our prayers. But, but I'm, I'm gonna throw this out there too. As you are clinging to promises from God, they will not always come in the expected way. God loves to, to show up in ways that we don't expect. So his promises are certain. They often come in surprising ways. And then his promises are gonna be fulfilled completely. God is complete when he fulfills his, his promises. The, the description in this passage talked about the people being full of joy, just like at the end of a harvest. This was an agrarian society, so after a long season of working and waiting and, and watching the crops go and bringing those crops in, there was amazing joy. And even deeper imagery had some of the wartime imagery. That, and again, for a part of the kingdom that was used to many wars and invasions, that, that the joy and the peace would be so complete that you could take the weapons and that you could take the garments worn in battle and you could burn them because you no longer need them. Not only has peace come for a season, but peace has come permanently. So when God provides, when God answers and, and delivers on his promises, he delivers completely. And so you got to be asking then, okay, well then how is this going to happen? These are amazing predictions, Isaiah. These are incredibly hopeful claims. How do we know this is going to happen? And that leads us to verse 6 where he says, for, so the reason that all of this is going to happen, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So if you break down this verse, there are many uh, just amazing descriptions of this king who is to come. First of all, he is clearly human. He's going to be born as a child. Uh, he's going to become a king. So those are things we're familiar with, with human beings. Uh, but there's, there's some added descriptors here. He's going to be called Mighty God. He's going to be called Everlasting Father. Very clearly some descriptors of deity. And so in a very unique way, the one who is coming is fully God and fully man. This, this is a unique uh, claim of any faith on this planet, any religion, any faith system, to have a coming king who would be at the same time fully God and fully man. It's unprecedented in Isaiah's time. It's unprecedented since that any faith would believe that this kind of king would be coming. And so um, as the descriptions go on, we see these names attached. And in the ancient Near East, it, wasn't, it was pretty common for kings to attach names to themselves. Alexander the Great, you know, and usually they would write their own descriptors, okay? And so maybe they'd come up with theirs and be these big grandiose titles and everybody else is rolling their eyes behind them, okay? So, but as Isaiah was describing this one to come, these are descriptors that, again, you will not find of any other king out there, any other religious leader. He described him as a wonderful counselor, Wonderful, unfortunately, has been kind of diminished in our day. Oh, isn't that wonderful? You know, it's just kind of a, it doesn't have the clout that it had in Hebrew. In the Hebrew word, it meant to be extraordinary, to be surpassing, uh, to be marvelous, just mind-blowing. 
In Psalm 139, David used it to describe God when it's the part of the psalm where it talks about, although God is so great and infinite in heaven, that he knows every detail about our lives. He knows when we stand up or sit down. He knows a word that's on our lips before we even speak it. And after David described the intimacy with which God knew him, and, and how personal God was with him, he said, such thoughts are too marvelous, are too wonderful for me. So there's that word wonderful again. It's, it's mind-blowing. It's staggering. I can't understand this. In fact, one translator even uses the word beautiful, that God, if you were to see him, if you were to see uh, this wonderful counselor, you would be so astonished at his beauty and grandeur and surpassing greatness that you wouldn't worship because you had to, you would worship because you want to. Like it would just be your natural response. So wonderful counselor. Counselor was one who delivered uh, wisdom, who taught what is right. And so what a beautiful combination that the first descriptor of this king is that he would be astonishing in his beauty and in his glory, and yet he would also be there to instruct us and show his people what is right and what is wrong. He's a wonderful counselor. He's mighty God. And so Isaiah has already predicted that the, the child to come, born of a virgin, would be called God with us, Emmanuel. And so this is staggering. Not only would, is this great king coming to live among us, not just this great, powerful man coming to live with us, but this is God himself coming to live with his people. Mighty God with his people. Wonderful counselor and mighty God. This was a claim that Jesus wasn't afraid to, to make, that he and the father were identical, that one time he said, the father and I are one. And there were three different times in the book of John where Jesus made it so clear that he identified himself as God. One time he used the, the very technical Hebrew name for God. He called himself I am. And so it was so clear to his enemies that three different times in John when Jesus claimed equality with God, they picked up rocks to throw at him and kill him. Because in Jesus' day, it was a capital offense. You were supposed to be stoned to death with rocks if you claimed to be God. Three different times he made that claim. And he didn't just say it, he backed it up with his miracles and walking on water. And the ultimate exclamation point underscore slam dunk was when he rose again from the dead. He's a wonderful counselor, mighty God, and then he's everlasting father. This one kind of trips people up sometimes, you know, kind of as if the Trinity's easy to figure out anyway. But, you know, so Father, and I thought Jesus was the Son. Why is he described here as everlasting Father? And I think the thing that I've discovered as I've read about this is that often in the ancient Near East, kings would love to be described as the father of their people. And so what would they be communicating to their people there? They'd be communicating to them that I will care for you. I will provide for you. I will protect you. And so in that sense, this one who is coming would be able to do that eternally. He would be an everlasting provider and protector of his people. So this coming king uh, that Isaiah saw was going to be able to fulfill those things that no earthly king has ever been able to do. And the last one, the last descriptor is the prince of peace, that his rule on this planet would be characterized uh, by peace. Again, the English word peace maybe doesn't have the same punch as the Hebrew concept of shalom. Maybe you've heard the word shalom, but in the Hebrew context, shalom was a deep, settled peace that hit you at the soul level. It wasn't just a stress-free week. It was a deep contentment in the deepest part of your heart 
and your soul. It reminds me of when Jesus said in Matthew 11, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest for your souls. It's just being completely calm and chill and just knowing that he is in control and that he is caring for you. He is the prince of peace. And the last verse in our section kind of, again, underscores, exclamation points, these promises that God is making when God says this, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Love that last statement. The zeal of the Lord is his passion, his commitment. He's throwing everything in to make sure this happens. We, we cannot have a more secure and a more certain promise from God than we've just read in Isaiah 1, 9, 1 through 7 here. God is committed to this plan. And so what's really interesting is that when you st- we're going to study the book of Isaiah in different sections over the next six or eight months, and so you'll see different predictions that Isaiah made about this coming king. Uh, there's times, like we've said this morning, he's coming as mighty God. He's coming as everlasting father. But there's other times that Isaiah predicted that this one to come would be a suffering servant. And so, sorry about that. The uh, analogy that I like to use is sometimes when the prophets spoke, it's, uh, it's like when you drive through Nebraska. If you've ever had the misfortune of driving through Nebraska, usually you're doing that to get somewhere better. And that somewhere better is usually the Rocky Mountains, right? And so when you get to the Colorado border, you just think, okay, great, I'm going to see mountains. And unfortunately, western Nebraska has spilled into eastern Colorado, right? There's still a couple hours of nothing if you've ever driven that. But eventually you get to that place where you see the Rocky Mountains, it's like a backdrop, and, and from a distance, it looks one-dimensional. It just looks like there's all these mountains just stacked together, and all these peaks are just right there, like there's a wall of mountain waiting for you. But as you get closer, you realize you get some depth perception that you'll run into one peak, and then there's another peak and another 50 miles, and another peak is 50 miles even beyond that. And so when the prophets wrote, they often wrote in that way where you can read Isaiah and see that this coming king had all these amazing qualities, eternal, you know, everlasting father, prince of peace, mighty God. But you also see prophecies that this one to come was going to suffer and, and that he was going to die for us. For example, Isaiah 53, 6, here was uh, the prediction that Isaiah saw. It says that we uh, all like sheep have gone astray. I think my translation's different, I'll do this. Uh, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so people were confused when Jesus first came uh, to this planet. He came as the suffering servant. He came to defeat sin. He came to die for our sin. And so people were confused as they read these other prophecies. They're like, wait a minute, aren't you going to come be a king? Aren't you going to set up a a kingdom that's going to rule forever? Like, what's going on here? And so you definitely see fulfillment when Jesus was here. There were ways that he clearly acted and revealed the fact that he's a wonderful counselor. He's mighty God. Again, the miracles he showed rising from the dead. But his first mission was to come and to conquer sin for us. I read this week that if Jesus had come the first time to totally just deal with God's enemies, guess who would have been taken out and all of that? That would have been every one of us. 
because every one of us has rebelled against God, just like Isaiah 53, 6 said. We're all like sheep. We've gone astray. We've done our thing instead of God's thing. So the first time Jesus came as king, he came to conquer uh, that ultimate enemy to God, and that was our sin and our rebellion. And so what's amazing now is that we are offered uh, an amazing gift in this king. We are offered uh, a gift in what Jesus came to do for us. And the question is this morning is what are we going to do with this information about this king who has come and uh, is coming? You know, four-fifths of biblical prophecy has already been fulfilled. The remaining one-fifth is about the time that Jesus will come again and where he will fulfill the remaining uh, promises and prophecies about him coming as a king who will rule on this earth. And so in the meantime, we have a time to decide about what we're going to do with this king and with what he did for us the first time he came. And so um, it's interesting if you... Um, when I answer that question, I think you've got to put yourself in one of three categories. And, and the biggest question is, uh, do you really see Jesus for how great he is and how amazing he is? The people that saw Jesus actually walked with him, saw him, lived around him, had three different responses to him, okay? When they heard Jesus claim he was God or they saw him do something that proved that he was God, there were three responses. One is some people hated him for that. Like I said earlier, some people picked up rocks to kill him for that. They could not stand somebody claiming to be God. So there's either hatred of Jesus. The second category would be people who were freaked out by it. There were people that saw Jesus do great things, and they would say, who is this man? And they would just get away. They wouldn't even want to be around him. They were so freaked out. And then the third category would be, would be those when they heard him teach and when it was revealed to them that he was God. They fell and they worshiped him. They just fell at his feet. They weren't commanded to. They didn't have to. They just did. And so I guess what I've got to ask all of us this morning is like, what, what camp are we in? What would be our response? Uh, because I would say the most common one you probably hear in our country today um, would be, uh, you know, I kind of like Jesus. Yeah, he's a good teacher. He's a pretty moral guy. He's a pretty good leader. Um, you don't see people who actually saw Jesus and heard him kind of liking him. Okay, that's, I don't see that being an option. And, and I say if that's our response, we're probably not really seeing him. We're not seeing how amazing he is because we saw either there's hatred, there's fear, or there's just flat-out worship. And um, clearly what would have been on Isaiah's heart for us this morning, what's on Jesus' heart for us this morning is that we would see him for who he is, for who he really is, that we would fall at his feet and that we would follow him, that we would trust him, and we would accept him. Um, when Isaiah started his career as a prophet, God kind of warned him, you're going you're gonna to speak and people aren't going to hear you. You're going to show them things and people aren't going to see it. And that's been true of this message of Christianity throughout the centuries. Again, today, 150,000 people will see Jesus and start following him, but there are so many who are just not seeing him and not hearing the truth about him. And so my question for you this Christmas is, is this going to be the year you finally see him for who he is? That you really understand this amazing gift that God is giving you through Jesus Christ. And so I want to just share the gospel with you. Um, the gospel is that every one of us has been created by God. We're loved by God deeply. But every one of us has offended this holy God. 
And so we are in desperate need of being rescued and saved. And that is why Jesus Christ came to this earth the first time to give his life uh, in our place. He took our sin and when we put our faith in him, we receive his life and we receive his forgiveness and we're given eternal life with our father. It's an amazing offer that he gives you. Uh, And so if you really understand the gospel, it's gonna be at the same time the most offensive thing that's ever been said about you, that you are in the eyes of God a desperately wretched sinner that you have so you there is no hope for you because you have offended a holy God you you can't clean yourself up you can't try to be a nice person and do nice things to make up for what you've done you are in desperate straits and the gospel is incredibly offensive when you see that truth but at the same time the gospel will affirm you like you've never been affirmed because you are so dearly loved by God that he was willing to have his one and only son, Jesus Christ, die for you. So to receive the gospel is an incredible act of humility. You have to admit that you are sinful in front of a holy God and that your only hope is to receive his gift of eternal life. So um, we've had some great conversations with people after the first two services. If, if you are still wrestling with this, you know, there are some cards in your bulletin this morning. We would love for you to fill that out and you can leave it on your seat. You can, some people have taken it to the connect counter, um, but just let us know either that you are very interested in, could somebody talk to me about how I can receive this gift of Jesus Christ and have my sins forgiven. Or I've appreciated too, some people have said, I've still got questions. Can, you, can somebody meet with me? Can we talk about it? One man last hour said, I've been coming to this church for 12 years and I still have questions. I still, not, I still do not believe. Can we talk? And that's amazing honesty. And so again, don't just go through the motions this Christmas. Come square up with this gift that God is offering you. And may this be the Christmas that your eyes open, that your ears open, and you receive this amazing gift that God has for you. We also have a book for you in the Connect counter. Um, It's called A Case for Christmas. It was written by a former Chicago Tribune reporter who denied Jesus and all the gospel and everything I've just said. And yet through his investigative uh, research, he ended up putting his faith in Christ. So he's kind of telling you his journey and how he got there. So if that book would help you, we'd love for you to grab one of those. So that's to those of you who haven't received this gift yet. For those of you that have this, this gift, that your eyes have been opened, you do understand who Jesus is, and you've put your faith in him. Could I just, one more time, just briefly here, remind you of this gift you have? Can I walk through each of these names and ask you, are you living as if you have a king who is a wonderful counselor? Jesus said that if you are truly his follower, you will abide in his word. You will study this book. You will live in this book and that you will know truth and truth will set you free. Would you describe yourself as being set free because you know, you know the truth? That's a gift that Jesus offers you. Um, are you living your life as if mighty God is walking with you? Are, you? are you seeing courage in your life? Are you moving into risky places because God's got your back? Are you, are you a person who walks as if you're walking with a mighty God? Are you walking as if you have opened this gift 
and your Savior is an everlasting Father, that every need is being met, and so you are confident of that. In fact, the way you show you are so confident of that is that you are generous with what you have because you know he's going to meet your needs. You are freed up to meet the needs of people you see around you who are living in dark, darkness or without hope. And I praise God so many of you are living that kind of lifestyle. But if you know an everlasting Father, you are generous with those in need. And if you know you have a prince of peace, how would the family around you or the friends around you describe you? Do you live as if you walk with the prince of peace? And so I think, I think the reason I, God wants us to remember who our Savior is is that he wants to free us up so that we can live the life that Jesus lived, not focused on ourselves, not worried about our needs being met, but truly looking out to give hope uh, to the hopeless to give light to those who are living in darkness. And I just praise God as I look back at the last year of people who I've seen really clear evidence that they are walking with this Savior because I see how they're living. I see their joy. I see their courage. In the spite of sickness, in spite of difficulty, things are going great in their life. They're making God a priority. It's because they understand who Jesus is and that he walks with them. So let me pray for us to wrap up here uh, Father, I just pray that you truly would open eyes throughout this room, including my own, just to open our eyes to see how amazing Jesus is, that we can see with this certainty uh, that Isaiah saw, that we know Jesus, you are wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and that if for the first time we need to receive you, God, that you would give people in this room the courage to do that, the courage to seek out conversation, to seek out answers. And I thank you that you are eager to provide those answers. And God, I pray for those of us that say, yeah, we know you. We've received that gift. We know Jesus. I pray in greater ways you would just help us, Jesus, live like we know you. That we would even just grab one of those names, those descriptors of you, and really embrace you being mighty God, maybe, or the Prince of Peace, and that, and that you would set us free in greater ways. Uh, to live for others and not just live for ourselves. God, thank you for the truth that you just shared with us. It's in your great name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Parkview's mission is to love God, love others, and serve the world. If you live in the Iowa City area, we invite you to join us in person for services every weekend. You can get service times and directions, download messages, and get news and information about Parkview Church by visiting www.parkviewchurch.org. You can also contact us by phone at 319-354-5580 or write to us at Parkview Church, 15 Foster Road, Iowa City, Iowa, 52245.